0: Ben Kaznoka was practically born an entrepreneur. In his teenage years, he started and scaled a couple of companies before becoming chief of staff at LinkedIn and Greylock, both founded by Reed Hoffman. From this partnership, two books were born, co-authored by Ben and Reed, including New York Times bestseller, The Startup of You. Since 2017, Ben has been a co-founder and partner at Village Global, an early stage venture capital firm that aims to work not simply as a traditional VC, but also as a network. With almost a quarter billion dollars under management, Village Global is backed by some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. In this episode, Ben shares inspirational tips for your journey and career as an entrepreneur. What sets Village Global apart from the rest of the VC world? How to build a strong network? And how his interest in Buddhism is compatible, or not, with the entrepreneurial mindset? My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos latam running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters at VivaReal, We were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like new bank loft, RD station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months to learn more head to Zendesk.com slash startups. Also, We're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to Latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I'd worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olsen and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Cool, let's dive in. I just had, I hosted a podcast with Chris Schroeder a couple days ago, and and he gave me a couple ideas on some questions too, and so he he spoke highly of you, and and I know he's pretty involved in Village Global, but before we get into details of your journey uh, in Village Global, I wanted to you know, say that I haven't met many Buddhist VCs before. So I'm curious to know what led you to Buddhism. And if you're comfortable sharing a little bit more about how that converses with the venture capitalist in you.
1: Well, I've, I've been interested in Buddhism for probably more than a decade. And I'm not sure I would identify as a Buddhist, but I'm certainly interested in Buddhist ways of thinking and some of the core tenets of Buddhism. Uh, I'm at no means an expert. I've done several um, long meditation retreats with real experts, so I've learned little bits and pieces from them along the way, and I've read a bunch of books, but um, it's a practice and it's a long journey. Um, I think the essence of it that's most compelling to me is a couple things. One is this idea that uh, we naturally live lives of delusion, um, that when we look out into the world and try to understand it, we have sort of blinders on in which we, uh, we see a distorted view of reality. A maybe simple way of explaining that is that most of us know about these cognitive biases like confirmation bias or sunk cost fallacy, these other things that distort clear rational thinking. And the Buddha really uh, observed that you know, 22,000 plus years ago. Um, so much of the Buddhist framework for thinking has to do with seeing the world more clearly, overcoming that delusion and seeing the truth about your own life about the nature of your mind and uh, the nature of reality around you. And as an entrepreneur, as a business person, as a leader, uh, I can't think of anything that's more important than seeing the world clearly and seeing your own mind clearly. And there's a bunch of tactics and techniques that are taught in various Buddhist traditions to try to um, become someone who's a clearer thinker about uh, reality. I think, and those are, the, those are the techniques that I've been studying, I think the one challenge for many entrepreneurs and VCs when it comes to Buddhist ideas is this uh, is sort of a different idea of Buddhism around non-attachment, and which can be in conflict with ambition and goal setting, right? So there's this idea of Buddhism that you never want to be overly attached to any given outcome, be it a good one or a bad outcome, to sort of let those experiences pass on through and maintain a kind of equanimity. Um, of course, entrepreneurs tend to have to set really ambitious goals. You have to be pretty attached to those goals. You have to want those goals to be realized in order to have any level of success, as you know, Brian. And uh, so there are some areas of Buddhism that I think are less compatible uh, with the entrepreneurial life, which is why I, I consider myself a student and an explorer of the ideas, but I don't necessarily subscribe to each and every one tenant. I don't live every tenant in my own life.
0: That's really helpful. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess that, you kind of address my, my question of that little internal tug war that might happen of ambition and, and being able to let go. And, but I think that there's philosophically, it sounds like there's a lot of things that probably help your thought process in what you're doing. What would you say is, is a helpful contributor to you being a successful investor in terms of how you approach things and how you're maybe certain awareness that allows you to maybe see certain, certain opportunities or deal with entrepreneurs in a different way, maybe?
1: I mean, one of one thing that Steve Jobs said many years ago, which always struck me, is that the journey is the reward. You know, it's the climb up the mountain that can be as fulfilling or more fulfilling even than getting to the top of the mountain and looking out. And when I reflect on my own uh, successes and 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 failures, when I think about the the experiences that have been most fulfilling to me, it really is the journey and the struggle and the pursuit. And you know, sometimes when I've even achieved the thing that I set out to achieve. It doesn't quite feel as good as I thought it would. And um, this is actually a core tenet of Buddhism, which, you know, my own sort of rough translation is getting what you want won't make you happy. There's a sense in which there's a great deal of impermanence and emptiness to real external achievement. It doesn't really fill us up in the way that we often think it will. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's a really important lesson that if you don't love or learn to love the day-to-day. It doesn't mean you have to love every single day of the journey because they'll certainly be really hard days as both you and I know, Brian. But you know, most days of most weeks, you really have to enjoy the grind, enjoy the struggle, enjoy the pursuit. Because if you hate your life and you're doing it all because you think that when you finally take your company public, when you finally sell the company for $500 million, when you finally get to 1,000 employees, whatever milestone you think will finally represent a a satisfaction and success. It's very unlikely that that will actually produce any sort of enduring happiness in your life. And so I know so many entrepreneurs and VCs who live lives of great agitation and um, conflict and unhappiness, and they just put up with it because they think that at the end of the road, happiness awaits. But Buddhism teaches you that that's uh, really a myth. And uh, you have to be enjoying every single day in order to actually enjoy your life.
0: Yeah, I guess embracing those moments, right, where you're in the struggle because I can really, it really resonates with me because I think a lot of people set out on their journey and they're like, when I achieve this or when I, there's some kind of happiness kicker that happens. And as anyone that's overcome obstacles and then reached your goals, you're constantly looking at what's the next mountain, right, (laughs) pretty soon afterwards. so. I'm going to share one quick anecdote from I was uh, in Bogota, Colombia, and the Dalai Lama came and spoke. I remember someone asked this like really pursuit of philosophical question of like finding the answer. And it was like this really tense question. And I always remember the Dalai Lama, he paused for a second. This is a room of like 4,000 people, paused for a second, and he said, "Hmm, I don't know. (laughs) And the whole like crowd just started kind of erupting and and clapping. and, And it was just like this moment of like, This shared moment for everybody in the room, and as an investor, there must be moments where you know you don't have all the answers, and and founders maybe look to you for answers, and you've got to have that kind of humility. Speaking more specifically about how you philosophically, how do you work with the founders, and what's your personal philosophy in how you support founders at at Village Global, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the model because I'm super curious.
1: Yeah, well, I think you you touch on a good a point around humility in terms of the Dalai Lama anecdote. And I think that's anybody who's embarked on any sort of spiritual quest quickly gets humbled by how little we actually know about how the world works and how our own minds work and so on. So I think it's a really telling story. Thank you for sharing that. And I think many VCs would do well to remember uh, these ideas because the world of entrepreneurship and business is extraordinarily complex. Um, and I think what makes this humility issue difficult for VCs is that on the one hand, our superpower is pattern matching, right? Our superpower relative to someone who's full-time on a single business is that we are talking to and looking at decks of and seeing metrics about thousands of companies at once, right? We're getting pitched all the time. We have portfolios. And so we peer across this broad data set and we begin to notice patterns Right, We begin to notice the, the, the sorts of habits of mind and behavior that define great entrepreneurs and then the habits of mind and behavior that are common to those that are struggling. We see certain strategies work, certain techniques work or don't work. And that's our superpower because when we talk with a CEO in our portfolio, we can say, hey, look, we've seen this playbook before. Or here are the four ways that our startups have a successful time hiring engineers. Or here are the three things that we see in common among companies that are expanding globally or whatever the the scenario might be, right? So that's our superpower, is that pattern matching. And I think every VC can say that. We at Village, because of the scale at which we operate, we have an especially large data set from which to discern these trends and points of commonality. I think the flip side, though, is that uh, we sometimes do this pattern matching, and then we just assume that we have a perfect model of the target company, the founder who's seeking advice or who we're trying to help. We assume that we can just uh, fit them right in To This pattern that we have in our head or that we observe and the truth is not every company fits into that pattern in fact some of the great entrepreneurs today are actually trying something genuinely new and different where you can't actually apply the lessons from other companies right the pattern doesn't fit and and that's where there's an arrogance that VCs can have when they give advice it's like oh I've seen oh you're a seed stage company building a SaaS product for you know HR professionals okay here are the eight things you need to know here's what's not going to work in your business. But every amazing business has in some way defined, uh, defied the rules, defined history. And so you sometimes have to be more humble than you might be intuitively as a VC doing that pattern matching and, and celebrate the idea that this might be the founder who actually breaks the rules, right? This might be the founder, even though the eight other founders in your portfolio tried it and didn't work, this person might make it work. That's what
0: makes them a great entrepreneur. Yeah, those sometimes are the breakout companies, right? And I think we've all been humbled at one point in that, in that exact scenario where we think we have the clarity of something and then all of a sudden somebody proves us wrong. And let's talk about the Village Global model a little bit. And how is it a different model for venture and, and why now for those listeners that don't know? Because I'm a big fan of what you guys have built in a pretty short amount of time.
1: We founded the firm four years ago on the premise that venture capital really needed to change. Um, the great irony from our perspective, my partners and Eric Thornberg and I and the full team at Village, is that VCs are all about backing disruptors and and change. And yet the venture capital business model and structure has not changed for the most part in the last 50 or 60 years. And that was just struck us as highly ironic and highly unfortunate because the nature of entrepreneurship is changing, right? The the way that people start businesses is changing. The number of entrepreneurs has just exploded in size. And so, you know, back in the day, there are these VCs sitting here in Silicon Valley who just sort of did all of the deals, right? They monopolized deal flow. They sat on Sand Hill Road. And made a ton of money because there are only a handful of VCs and all of the entrepreneurial talent was, you know, in the Bay Area or would travel to the Bay Area to pitch them. And it was pretty expensive to start companies and there wasn't a lot of capital around. And so VCs had a lot of the power relative to the founder. Fast forward to today, you know, as we record this in 2021, Brian, obviously the world looks a lot different, right? Founders have a lot more power than VCs for the most part because there's so many capital sources, um, there is talent everywhere around the world. Of course, in Latin America, as you know, and and throughout Southeast Asia, and Europe, and Africa. I mean, literally across the entire globe, there are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs with uh, who are waiting to be born. Who, if they're given the right capital and, and advice, can actually create huge businesses. And so, um, and then it's much cheaper to start businesses today, right? You, can, you don't have to raise $10 million to start uh, an internet company today, right? So you can get going and actually test and iterate much more quickly. So anyway, th- those, among other things, constitute sort of the, the change in the world of how businesses are formed. And we wanted to create a firm that would be responsive to these changes. We wanted to create a firm that would be as adaptive as uh, these entrepreneurs and meet these entrepreneurs where they have real needs. And so we wanted to invent an entirely new way of running a venture capital firm. The first thing that we did that was really different was we said that when we talk to founders today, they're really inspired by people who've come before them. right They look up to uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and say, "Wow, if I could build a business as significant as theirs, that would be amazing." And they you know were uh, voraciously reading accounts and stories and advice from those sorts of leaders. And we said we want to build a community in which those very leaders are actually the anchor LPs and advisors in the village network. And so, uh, most of the money that we invest into startups is the personal capital of, of those people. So we call them luminaries, and about twenty-five people like Bezos and Gates and, and and Reed Hoffman and Abby Johnson at Fidelity and Bob Iger at Disney. It's those those people's personal money in the fund that we invest into companies. The second thing that we do that's really different is we use a network to source and select and support companies. And so we partner with people like Chris Schroeder, as you mentioned, uh, who represent different expertise areas in the world, right? So the world is so complex. It's so vast. There's so much opportunity. We think it's really foolish for GPs to sort of sit in their office and think that they can be experts on everything in all geographies. Far better, in our opinion, to sort of decentralize decision-making a little bit and push Uh, judgment out to the edges of the network where we can empower people who really know what they're doing in a given niche to go make investments in that niche. And so we have sort of a network strategy for doing a lot of our deals. And the final piece of our strategy is around the value of a peer community. And so most venture firms run really small portfolios and it's all about the GP giving advice to the founder. What we've observed in today's founders is they love giving and getting advice from each other. There's a lot you can learn from someone who's in the trenches alongside you building their business at the same time you're building it, right? It used to be that VCs would say, oh, you know, Brian, 20 years ago when I started my company, here's what I learned. That's not as helpful as someone telling you, hey, 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 Brian, I'm also trying to solve SEO. And here's what I learned yesterday about how to do that, right? The, 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 the timeliness of the advice that you can get from other founders is really profound, and so at Village, we try to build this broad founder community where we we make we, we, we have a broader portfolio than many venture firms so as to enable this peer community at scale where we can have a lot of founders helping each other. So those are the three things that make Village different. It's luminaries as our LPs, a network strategy for finding companies, and a broad peer community. And what that's amounted to over the last few years is a portfolio of you know, a couple hundred plus Businesses all around the world, all using technology in some way to disrupt an industry, and you know we, we're usually investing at pre-seed and seed or early A. And a lot of these businesses have have um, performed very very well, and um, you know in three or four years we have companies raising you know meaningful Series B, Series C rounds, and we hope that in the next few years uh, we'll see some of those companies SPAC, go public, buy, be be acquired, and um, and then of course re-enter
0: the community as New LPs and luminaries of in their own right. I, I really, really identify with this. And, and it's funny because a lot of my natural tendencies like led towards Village Global. And then I actually met Eric Torenberg because I went through on deck. And then I'm like, and I actually learned about Village Global when I was investigating on deck. And then I saw what you guys are doing there. And so it really resonates with me because I think geographically also in, in a broad region of Latin America is my areas of focus as you, as you know. But it's impossible to know everything about each market, about how all the network-driven model it makes so much sense. So I understand the village part. Let's talk about the global and where does that, where do you, your tentacles reach? Give us an idea. You mentioned Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa. What does it look like today in terms of the portfolio and your network?
1: Yeah, today about, you know, 60 to 70% of our investments are in the United States of which uh, a majority are in Silicon Valley or in other ecosystems like New York or LA or what have you. So a majority of our investments are in the US, but um, you know that still leaves about 30 plus percent of our portfolio to be outside of the US. And in Latin America, um, we invest um, with great enthusiasm because we think there's just um, you know, huge markets, tons of talent, pretty friendly business cultures, and to some extent, a shortage of smart capital that can be really helpful to founders. Obviously, folks like you, Brian, are, are helping address that, that gap in the market. But we believe that you know, throughout countries like uh, Brazil and Mexico, uh, Colombia, uh, especially uh, among other countries in the region, there's just tremendous opportunity to um, back some of the most talented founders, connect them into our global network. And especially if they're trying to raise money in the States, which many companies do need to do at the later stages, because while there might be a lot of seed or series A capital, there are as many firms, for example, in Latin America that can lead quality series A, B, C, D rounds uh, for these global venture scale ups. And so we really try to help the global businesses connect to the very best uh, U.S. capital when it's time to raise follow on rounds. It's one of the things we can uniquely do for them. So we're really bullish on Latin America. And have several investments uh, in the region we also do a lot of investing as i mentioned in southeast asia i think we have 10 investments in india and a couple in uh, indonesia singapore etc and that's another just part of the world that's very very exciting you know i think western europe uh we've we've also invested in europe that's a much more competitive and mature venture ecosystem you know tons and tons and tons of funds and so we do invest in that region have some amazing companies there Uh, But it's probably a different stage in its maturation than LATAM
0: or uh, Southeast Asia. And I guess I'm going to maybe answer my own question here. But there's a, a risk when you're looking around the entire world that you try to boil the ocean. Talk about the network model you have. Speak to Latin America specifically. Like I know that you have some relationships with a few other entrepreneurs. Talk about what that process looks like.
1: Yeah, so we, you know, b- boiling the ocean is always the risk. And I think uh, for for any company or venture firm, right, You, there's a lot of value in focus. But one of the other values of focus is that allows you to develop focused expertise, right? You can actually learn the ins and outs of an ecosystem of an industry of a problem area. So again, at Village, the way we work is we partner with people who we have high trust relationships with, who build expertise in different areas. So, for example, one of our founders, uh, a guy named Santiago Suarez, is the founder-CEO of a company called Adi in Bogota. And Adi is a, um, it's like a firm for, for LATAM, is the vision. And in addition to being one of our founders, we also partner with Santiago on early-stage investments. And so um, he has a finance and investment background of his own prior to prior to being an entrepreneur. And so we will partner with Santiago when we look at companies, certainly in Colombia, but even fintech companies in Mexico and around the region, because as a fintech entrepreneur himself with a good investment lens, he has a perspective that's really essential for us to get to confidence on those sorts of deals. Similarly, um, you know we mentioned Chris Schroeder, who also has done a lot of investing in the region and in other global markets and can do can connect the dots very effectively and do that sort of pattern matching that we were talking about earlier with respect to, oh, this is a you know real estate tech company in the Philippines. Here's a real estate tech company in Argentina. There are probably some similarities. Of course, there are lots of differences, but what can we learn from these global examples? And so we will partner with people like Santiago or Chris uh, when we do deals in the region. And sometimes you think about expertise from a geographic perspective. Sometimes expertise is really more of a, a sector area, right? You can be based in San Francisco and just know a ton about A particular type of business. And whether that business is being formed in Brazil or London or New York, that expertise is what's valuable. And so sometimes geography is the right lens, but sometimes
0: it's just background and expertise. 100% support the idea of the sector focus. I was fortunate enough to bring on an early investor who was the former CEO of a similar company to Vivaral in Australia called REA Group. And he'd scaled that company and literally had the playbook from industry marketing, sales, product, and just had built it and scaled it, and so it was. It literally shaved two or three years off of my life in terms of internal debates and validating ideas. And so that's a, a huge, huge win for, for entrepreneurs. And Santi, you mentioned he's a friend of Latitude and a mentor. He's so he he leads our se- fintech session a lot of times uh, when we have a new cohort, and he's an incredibly crisp thinker and communicator. And he he does a great job of boiling down. The fintech space in Latam. So I wanted to talk about this relationship with with founders. You know, everyone says that they're founder friendly. Like that's it's par for the course when you're an investor in terms of how you do that or, or saying you do that. What what is village, what does that mean to at village being founder friendly?
1: Well, I think people say you're right, it is a cliche and no VC would ever. suggest that they're not founder-friendly. So I think the the interesting question is like, yeah, how does it manifest at our firm versus any other firm? Um, And in what ways do we try to be helpful to founders? And I think one way that we think about being founder-friendly is we try to think about what are the founders' real needs and challenges? And then how can we be helpful to them? And that general topic has changed a lot in recent years. Because when I started my first company 20 years ago, I um, had to go to the public library and get a book out on how to write a press release because there was no, there were no blogs or online anything about how to start a business and be an entrepreneur, right? So the the, the amount of the access to information was very limited. Uh, today, if you're starting a company, there are literally 10,000 blog posts about how to write a press release. There's 10,000 articles on how to do SEO. There are 10,000 articles on how to hire. I mean, there are a million podcasts that have amazing interviews with people much smarter than you or I talking about how to build incredible businesses, right? So there's a million uh places out there where people can actually get educated on how to be a successful entrepreneur. So sometimes I tell founders like if you can't figure out the basics on how to build a business, you know, if you haven't read an article on product market fit, if you haven't read lean startup etc, I mean, what are you doing? You don't need to ask me to explain those things for you. Go read it on your own, right? It's all out there. It's it's basically free. So go educate yourself. Now, once you've educated yourself, of course, there're still things you can learn from a content perspective. But the main thing that you need as an early stage entrepreneur, we believe, is a network. You need to get introductions at the right time to the right person when it comes to trying to hire, sell to customers, raise money from VCs, etc. So you can read a million articles about fundraising, but nothing helps the fundraising process like a warm introduction to a quality VC who trusts the person who's doing that referral. So we at Village, with respect to being founder friendly and helping founders, we definitely try to we definitely will teach them things, and there are. There's some content that we we compile, especially for our, the companies that are in our accelerator. We spend a lot of time rolling up our sleeves and helping them on some of the advanced tactics of building a great SaaS business or consumer internet business or whatever space they're in. But generally speaking, we focus on network. We focus on connections, not content, because we recognize that there's so much content out there. It's almost like a litmus test for how much, how resourceful founder is. Like, have they gone and consumed the content on their own so that by the time they meet us, they really just would value our network
0: that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean the, the information's available and there for the consumption. One quick question I have is this whole network piece, and a lot of people have tried to solve this like kind of fundraising marketplace idea where it's like matching capital with investors. Why has no one really figured that out in a way that has proven super productive? I mean and there's a handful of initiatives out there that exist, but what are your thoughts on that? Can networks scale there and become productized through software? It's an interesting question. You're right that most uh,
1: fundraising processes today, while software and data are used to sort of assemble a target list and so on, most deals still happen through hand-to-hand introductions, right? It's very rare for quality entrepreneurs to be funded on cold outreach, and most of the sort of marketplace approaches, matching marketplaces, don't uh, have not worked. Um, I don't think I would rule it out altogether. I can imagine a world in which data and marketplaces and so on um, play a much more important role than they do today. And I know there are people who would argue that that would make sort of tech more inclusive and fair for folks that don't have existing networks to, you know, earn the warm introduction to Sequoia or whatever, Right. Um, Like imagine if every Sequoia investment decision was just made based like everyone, everyone in the world, no matter if you're Jeff Bezos or someone just coming out of high school, just fills out the same Google form and submits it in. And then, you know, it's this totally fair algorithmic process. Like that would really change the way most deals get done because the way you deals currently get done is you get a warm introduction to the right person at Sequoia who does these sorts of deals. And you have other people ping that person to provide back channel and reference context. And so it's a very personal human process that, as you said, Brian, doesn't scale. And so I wouldn't rule it out altogether, but I think the reason why to date it's been difficult is because these investment decisions and are very personal for both the VC and the founder. So the founder, you can, once you take a VC's capital, you can't return it, right? So you, you have somebody on your cap, to, generally speaking, you can do a secondary transaction, but you know, generally speaking, you're stuck with somebody for 10 years if, if things go well. And so you really want to get to know the person you're working with. And I think this is a little bit of a challenge in our current market. I'm not sure what you're seeing, Brian, but we have founders that, you know, sometimes say, I want to run a 10 day process and I'm going to go do like 60, 30 minute Zoom calls with people and then pick a term sheet. And kind of like you're about to sign up to working with someone for years. Don't you want to get to know them a little bit better? Like actually spend some real time. And so sure, software could help on some of the initial matchmaking, but in the end, humans need to get together and ask themselves, do we jibe, right? Are we working well together? Do we want to have a long-term partnership? And I'm not sure how much you can
0: automate or accelerate that process. Yeah, maybe, I mean, you can take the dating example, maybe. Like, there's some software that exists. You've got different websites and different, you know, mobile apps. And those things have maybe increased the efficiency of being able to meet more people. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to get married or you're going to spend some time, it's not it's not based on a, a profile but yeah, it intrigues me because I feel like still it isn't very efficient. And it's the reason why in Latin America, most founders that get funded are come from Ivy League schools or, you know, Stanford or Harvard, and there's some kind of really specific signal, which it's just the way it is right now. And I'm I'm just thinking more about the, the I think the it's talent. a good I
1: think yeah, it's good, it's a good general topic to think about because I think I think the dating examples is is accurate, which is that, you know, if you can make the top of the funnel matching more efficient, then you know, you can still have an extended get-to know-you period. Like, you know, if you match with someone in a dating app or something, you you would still go on dates and get to know that person over a period of time, right? And whatever cadence makes sense for both, both parties. I can imagine something similar in the venture ecosystem where just the top of the funnel is made more efficient. Um, and I also agree with you that it's a pity that so many VCs still rely on sort of old school credentials. To sift through the 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 sift through the pipeline because ultimately, what VCs are trying to do is right. They're inundated with pitches. There's so many. There are many more founders starting businesses than they could ever have the time to fund, and so the reason they use the, a network and introductions as the vetting source is because it allows them to take a pool of ten thousand companies and, and shrink it to a pool of a thousand companies to actually look at and evaluate. Right, and so they're just they're they're looking for sorting mechanisms, and this is why I think I'm, I'm bullish on. Uh, And I helped write a piece a couple of years ago on sort of micro-credentials and and nano-degrees and these other sorts of communities and affiliations and choruses and things like that that, you know, you can signal to employers, but also perhaps to investors that, hey, I'm legit, right? I didn't go to Harvard, but here are the five things I've done that would imply that I have entrepreneurial potential, and so you should prioritize me on your calendar. And I think the more we have those
0: sorts of artifacts
1: built, the better it will be for all.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think ironically, like a lot of this kind of brand building that happens in social media and writing about different topics, those all of a sudden become your, a little bit of your CV, right? In terms of what you've done and and how you're thinking about things. And recently got excited about just building a public more. Ryan Hoover uh, over Product Hunt and Eric, they started that movement a while ago. And I think that it puts on display and your credentials end up becoming your thoughts. And that's something I think is, is powerful for for founders. Yeah, it's it's a great point. I mean, I think it's a good example
1: of one way to develop sort of your own credentials to just, yeah, put your thoughts out there, think out loud, think in public, and then let your work sort of speak for itself. And I know lots of startup founders that have raised money by basically DMing on Twitter, a VC saying, hey, you know, look at my feed or, hey, here's a blog post that I wrote on, you know, some new dev tool that went viral. And let me tell you more about it. So they're I think social media and sort of the creator economy, et cetera, is one solution to this dynamic we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that you built a ton of credibility when you wrote multiple books. And like those are things that, you know, your work is out on display, right? I mean, you wrote Startup of You. And I'm going to transition to that because I think it leans on a powerful quote that says that all humans are born entrepreneurs, Ironically, startup founders can often feel like they're not in control and attach their, their self-worth to their business many times. Maybe you could share, what do you suggest they do, take more of an entrepreneurial approach in their own lives in general? Yeah, you know, in 2012,
1: uh, Reid Hoffman and I co-authored a book called Startup Review, which is a career strategy guide to help people in, in any industry, and in any career path, lead a more entrepreneurial life to, to look at. The lessons and insights from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs, and apply those very insights to your own career. And the Muhammad Yunus quote, who is a microfinance pioneer in Bangladesh, Brian, that you quote is, yeah, the quote is, "All humans are born entrepreneurs in the caves. You know, back in the day, we were all self-employed, finding food and feeding ourselves. But as modern civilization uh, came, Yunus went on to say, we became labor because they stamped us. You are labor." And we forgot that we are entrepreneurs. I love that. And it's basically this idea that our evolutionary history as humans is that of being a forger and a creator and a builder, right? We all had to do that just to survive and get to this point in our evolutionary history. And so anybody in the world who thinks of themselves as an employee or as labor or uh, as anybody other than an entrepreneur, I think, is missing, has forgotten their historical legacy, in a sense. And so what we argue in the book is we need to, for those of us who have perhaps lost some of our entrepreneurial mojo, we need to reclaim that entrepreneurial energy and that entrepreneurial mindset. And so even if you're a product manager at someone else's company, even if you're a consultant at a management consulting firm, I'm sure there are people listening to this conversation who are not necessarily starting their own business right now or not running their own startup. Maybe they're interested in entrepreneurship, they're thinking about it. But even if you have a day job somewhere else, You can think and act like an entrepreneur in your own life, right? You can take control of your career and uh, become adaptive, take risk, build a network, do all the things that founders do to build a great business, and you can do those things in your own life. And only then will you have a career that can flourish, that can be resilient to change. I mean, this pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, is such a good example of a black swan event that you know, disrupted so many industries and so many people's careers. Like in a three-week, I remember this from, you know, in March 2020, like there was a three-week window where we had, in just a few weeks, literally hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people in the U.S. alone, instantly out of work, right? Entire industries, the restaurant industry, the movie theater industry, you know, all in-person retail. I mean, just huge swaths of the economy just shut down. I mean, if you work in one of those industries, that's a shock of epic proportions. And so I think it's beholden upon for all of us to ask ourselves, how resilient are we to those sorts of unexpected changes? How do you invest in yourself to become more adaptive? And again, founders have to do this all day long when they're building these businesses against all odds. And our argument is, no matter what you're doing in your life, make a similar sort of investment in yourself, in your skill set, in your network, in your personal brand to be similarly adaptive long-term.
0: 100%. Uh, One thing you mentioned, and it, it made me think of something, Brazil, a lot of times when I worked there, there was this obsession with teams that people we hired as we scaled the company. And people would often say, what's the career plan for me? Like the company, do you have a career path for me? And I remember just like wanting to tell everyone, like, first of all, like, you should build your own career path. The company isn't designed to build your path for you. And if you think like an entrepreneur and you're like, Hey, I'm taking this on. I'm gonna make it happen. You become just so valuable to the company. It's it's like the best people that I work with were entrepreneurs and they they took their teams and they they had the pride of like making things happen. And so I couldn't agree more. And I and I loved the book. I remember when the book came out and uh in fact I have it here, and uh it's absolutely relevant today.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Brian. And we'll send you the 10th anniversary. Uh, a new edition is coming out next year. Um, awesome. That uh, we'll have to get you a copy of. I want to amplify your comment on career. It's, it's something we actually addressed in our subsequent book called The Alliance, which is for managers and leaders for recruiting entrepreneurial employees into their organizations. And what we say in The Alliance, the advice we give to managers is you have to tell your employees, look, it's not our job to be in charge of your career, right? Every individual has to be has to own their own career. No one can run your career for you. Now, your manager and the company you work for can be a really strong ally in that process. And in as much as you want to be growing in your current job, you should be having live conversations with your managers and colleagues about the kind of growth that you want to experience. So there definitely is a collaborative element to it. But this idea that the company you work for is responsible for your career, that is a very antiquated concept. That was true maybe 50 years ago, back in the company man, company woman era, where people work for one company, you know, their whole life. But in today's economy,
0: you have to be in charge of your own career. Totally. I mean, I'm excited to read that book. I love the original book and the, the extension. I'm excited to, sounds like next yeah, year. Yeah, the, the, the
1: extension, the, the way what happened was, just for your own context, it might be interesting. We wrote Startup you for individual professionals. and Then we got emails from all these CEOs and managers saying, how do I recruit and manage employees who are thinking in the startup view way, right? Because these people tend to be more ambitious. They tend to have be more driven by growth and professional development. Um, and so what does a company need to do to attract, manage, and retain those sorts of employees? And that was the framework that we developed. Well, it was originally came out of how LinkedIn managed, and then we wrote it into an HBR article, and then it turned into the book, The Alliance. And the premise is like, you want to Stop treating your employees like they're, uh, you know, lifetime uh, workers who are going to work for you for the rest of their career, but also don't treat them like day-to-day contractors where you might fire them at any moment or they might leave you at any moment. Like it's neither lifelong nor is it like a day-to-day contract. You want to instead forge a sort of medium-term relationship, which we call an alliance, in which you invest in your employees and commit to transforming their career. Because, again, if they're startup or you-style employees, they want to be growing. In an exchange, they commit to transforming the company's trajectory. And so this is mutual investment and mutual benefit over a realistic period of time, which we call tours of duty. And that's sort of the, the framework for how to
0: connect with these entrepreneurial employees in the workplace. I love that, man. And I think we both agree that as people that have led teams we love to see people succeed, right? It's a shot in the arm to be like when you've got someone that you work with you for a couple of years and goes and starts a company or gets this really prestigious role somewhere like that. I remember the first teams that I hired in Colombia. And I remember we'd focused on Colombia and then we realized Brazil was this massive opportunity. We had to pivot and move to Brazil and, and make that our focus. And I felt bad because not everyone, I couldn't take everyone with me and I had to let a bunch of people go. What was ironic about it was that I really like had an internal struggle on this and then shortly after one was working at Mercado Libre one was at Facebook running a big team like running SMBs at Facebook and eventually scaled their career and so like ironically I felt bad about it but it was the opportunity we had at, at an early kind of startup in a emerging ecosystem gave them incredible opportunities for their personal development and career so I think that's when there's this mutual benefit for everybody it's great
1: yeah, it's it's powerful. And, you know, we talk about in the Alliance, for example, um, we have chapters on alumni networks of companies, which is uh, something that McKinsey and Bain and these groups have done very successfully. But we think every company should have an alumni network. For one, having an alumni network implies that not everyone's going to be at your company for their entire life, which is fine. That's not like ultra disloyal. It's just it's reality. Assuming people complete honorable tours of duty to communicate, it's fine if if they're not there for 50 years, Right. But also what you get with an alumni network is that very powerful diaspora you talked about, Brian, where you have all these allies and friends and you know, former colleagues at all these different companies. And that can actually be useful to a company, right? So, like for example, when I was at LinkedIn, I helped start the LinkedIn alumni network you know, in the spirit of this book. And when you pull together the LinkedIn alumni base, it's a pretty powerful cross-section of the tech industry. And so the way that translates on the recruiting side is when you recruit a new employee into the company, you can tell them, hey, look, maybe you'll be here for two years, maybe you'll be here for six years, maybe you'll be here for 10 years, maybe you'll be here for 20 years. But at some point, if it's ever time for you to leave the company, we will welcome you into the alumni network. And then you're an alumnus for life. And that network of fellow alumni is actually really, really powerful. It's like a university alumni association, like one of the benefits of going to a great university is you have the alumni network. And so it actually helps you recruit employees on the front end by having by being able to point to these examples of successful alumni. And there was a great Business Week did a piece a few years ago on, I think it was J. Crew, the fashion you know, clothing company, how like six of the top CEOs in the fashion industry all used to work at J. Crew. Like the J. Crew alumni network is this powerful, like mafia in fashion. And I'm just thinking, like, if I were a recruiter working for J. Crew, I would take that article and hand it out to every single prospective candidate, right? It's like, come work at J. Crew, and you'll be part of this alumni network long-term. That's incredibly powerful.
0: Yeah, we've seen it, Rappi, like all of a sudden, like I've invested in probably, I don't know, four or five Rappi early employees. And it's just like, it built this entrepreneurial culture. You know, I remember talking to Sebastian about this, that one of the co-founders and he had such a positive spin on it. It was just a long-term vision of like, we know people aren't gonna be here forever and we love to see people succeed. And that's just the opposite of the crabs in the bucket, right? Where it's like, you work for me, you leave, and the alumni thing makes so much sense. I don't know why I haven't thought about it. You go to these top schools oftentimes, mainly, you know, you do an MBA at Harvard, there's an incredible network that is associated with that in every company that's successful. Um, and then also you, you have the best interests of the company moving forward even after you're gone because you want to expand your network.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And so I think it's a great tactic that even small companies, I think, can benefit from. So even if you have, you know, if you have more than 10 employees, say, I think it's probably time to start thinking about an alumni network because you will have people who leave or people who you have to let go, whatever, for different reasons. And as that alumni population starts to grow, consider uh, pulling that group together once a year, like a little reunion, um, connecting the alumni to current employees, like just make the alumni network an
0: asset of the business. Love that. Speaking of uh, kind of investing in yourself, which is a topic here, what are you doing to invest in yourself, and what's the latest with you? I'm always trying to get smart and and develop on lots of different on
1: lots of different fronts. I mean, I think intellectually, in terms of topic areas, I'm invest. I'm trying to get smarter on both crypto and, and bio, um, as you know, two major trends in our industry. Uh, bio meaning like biotech and biology and life sciences things like that, and crypto being Cryptocurrencies, DeFi, etc. I think at a separate from topic areas, I'm actually interested in trying to build upon strengths right now. So I wanted the I hired a coach to help me on writing earlier this year, where I already I think I'm a pretty good writer, as is, I have a lot of experience writing, but I felt like I still had room for improvement, a lot of room for improvement. And um, working with a coach has helped me identify some of those areas of improvement. So the skill of writing has been one thing I've been thinking a lot about. Um, And then the other thing I've been, you know, trying to invest myself around is just, is this is the perennial topic that I'm sure you are obsessed with and all of us are, which is just um, time management and organizing my tasks and thinking about my day to day and figuring out how I can uh, continue to tone my professional effectiveness, right? And that's everything from nitty gritty things like how I manage my calendar to how I partner with uh, my colleagues and EAs and other support folks, and maybe to how I think big picture about sort of the cadence of my life, right? Is life a series of sprints? Is it a long marathon? Um, there's just so much I want to do. I've got so many things going on all at once. That sort of continually honing my time and energy management is, uh, is a never-ending
0: uh, point of reflection for me. That's great. It's a constant process, right? <laughs> it doesn't end.
1: And I, you know, we've hosted so many dinners with village founders and so on. And it's, o- it's almost always a topic of conversation of just, you know, what productivity frameworks are you using? What latest tips do you have? What systems, what software, how are you using an EA or VA or whatever? Like, it's just because all these CEOs and you and I and our mutual friends, Brian, like we're all just obsessed with, trying to get more done right we have so many ambitions and goals and so
0: this the tactics of that is is always a rich conversation so ben a couple of these questions were suggestions from chris And i'm going to close it out here with one uh that he suggested also what's the most non-obvious controversial thought you're pulling on now
1: <laughs>
0: you know i uh of course the the
1: super controversial thought i'm not sure i could share in a public forum so it's always it's kind of like it reminds me of the question of you know sometimes CEOs are asked, you know, what's the biggest failure in your life? And people usually have like the prepared failure story. You're rarely going to get the ultimate failure story, right, in a public forum. Um, But, um, you know, so I'm not sure this is ultra controversial, but I'm actually uh, still bullish on San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, There's sort of this Twitter meme right now about, um, you know, out of control, crime, homelessness, tax, and so on. Um, and, And so I think this is this is a, it's perhaps controversial or contrarian in this moment, which is nine out of 10 VCs and entrepreneurs and pundits you'll talk to are sort of bearish on the Bay Area as an ecosystem. But I just think the network, the geographic network effect is so strong and uh, that I actually think it will be a, still probably the epicenter of tech entrepreneurship for a very long time. It's not to say that these other ecosystems, especially globally, won't rise in importance. But I'm, I guess, so I'm still bullish on Bogota and and uh, Rio and Sao Paulo, etc., and and uh, and Jakarta and Singapore and all the other places we've talked about in this conversation. But within the U.S. I'm not nearly as bullish on Miami, say, as others seem to be. Um, I just think that the density of network that's already established is, is going to keep Silicon Valley what it is. So that's one um, observation. We'll see how contrarian that is in two years. Maybe uh, maybe the pendulum has swung back the other way. But for, for the time that we're in this Miami moment, it feels uh, like a, a perhaps contrarian thing to to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, network effects are real, right? There's, these are rooted rooted things. Well, especially if it's geographic, it's like if
1: you have kids that go, are going to school, you know, if you have if you have kids in the third grade in some public school, that's like that's a much harder thing to unroot from from like versus like, oh, I use a software program. Oh, I guess I'll switch from Google Drive to Notion. It's like if your kids are enrolled in a community, yeah, to change soccer team really and yeah, soccer teams, friends,
0: church groups. I mean, there's just so much that's still physical in this world yeah. that it's very hard to change. It is. I'm with you. I'm actually just north of you. So we're going to have to get together in person one of these days here. Yeah, indeed. I'm up here. I'd love to share with you and learn a little bit more about your personal journey. Uh, I think it it fascinates me. Uh, And it's really amazing to have you on as someone with your experience and background. And I'm excited to see this increased enthusiasm for Latin America. That is a relatively new phenomenon for me, having been there for 15 years. And I shared uh, a clubhouse room with Anne and Santi uh, a couple months ago. And and it's exciting to see the Village is, is looking more at the region. And and hopefully I can support you. And I know we're working on a few deals together right now. So that's exciting. Yeah, boy.
1: congrats, Brian, on everything you've done with Latitude and look forward to uh, more collaborations uh, to come. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Ben Casanoca, co-founder and partner at Village Global. Be sure to check out Latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host Brian Reckworth, Balmus Latam. See you next week.